with the present beauty. One glance, that look, people flick up, cross eyes before hands sinking and Gaian tumbling to another place. Not just falling, everything melting and drifting until we meet, reach quiet, not just another place, but our space. That smile, that creep up my spine, tingle in my brain every time I drift.
There's a cloud, there's a cloud, a blue sky darkening that veils the light of the sun and foretells the rain. But there's a bird, there are birds, and some are singing to greet every new day that may come like the first of spring it is cold it is cold i've had
like me in a soda And life's like space without room And life's like bacon and ice cream That's what life's like without you Life's like forever becoming But life's forever dealing and hurt Now life's like death without living That's what life's like without you Sanskrit read to a pony I see you in my mind's eye Strangling on your tongue What good Is knowing such devotion I've been around I know what makes things wrong What good Is seeing our chocolate What good's a computerized nose And what good Is cancer in April Why no good No good at all January 1st, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. And Mutiny Radio is on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And if you go to our land acknowledgement page on the website, weeklyrev.org, and click on land acknowledgement, you'll find a list of links, including maps, um, mutual aid, as well as History of the Ramatouche Ohlone People and Zagorate Land Trust, which folks can donate to. Um, ugh. Oh, it's, wow. Um, I wish things that, you know, I wish that uh, being in a new year meant something. 
and uh, not to start off on a, a down note, but yikes, uh, it's just, ugh. And I try to think of who would want to listen to this show if I'm talking about, you know, serious things that are happening, oftentimes depressing and frustrating things that are happening, and perhaps that's why I put the music in as a nice barrier in between, but I also feel it's important to talk about what is happening as opposed to ignoring it. Not that you necessarily can't have both. I believe there are some, there's humor out there. It's just sometimes really hard to find, and I got some really sad news this morning that a friend of mine had passed away back in December, uh, Leo Lyons, and <sighs> just an incredible loss and it's just so fucking frustrating that we've lost so many amazing talented people who have given so much to others and there are actual <laughs> like ghouls who are in positions of power who are still alive causing harm and it's just it's so it's unjust it's unfair and it keeps on happening and it's I don't even have the words for it Having, you know, words don't do anything justice right now. And just so fucking angry. I'm angry at so many, that so many people have, are no longer here who should be here. Who really did make the world um, a better place. And the folks who are causing harm, I'll just repeat it, the folks who are causing harm are still around. Ugh. Yeah. But it's important to put it out there and to acknowledge that this is this is where we are and this is what we're going through right now. And I recognize a lot of folks are having a really difficult time right now and people were having a difficult time prior to this year, prior to last year. It's always been unjust and there are so many people who are working to make it an equitable just world and it's so fucking hard when there are people who are deliberately trying to cause pain and harm I have a few pen pals who are incarcerated and right now there's there's an outbreak in a lot of different jails and prisons and the one that I right to folks at in uh, Chowchilla there was um, another outbreak <sighs> of uh, COVID and uh, one of the people I'm writing to says that so she's at the Central California Women's Facility and 90% of the people in her building uh, tested positive to COVID for COVID and prison abolitionist, so I don't believe people should even be in prison in the first place. And a lot of the folks who I think do deserve some form of punishment are war criminals, for instance, um, violent police officers, greedy landlords who evict people or even burn their buildings down so they don't have to uh, <sighs> deal with their tenants. These are all unfortunately all real things. I Again, I keep on saying I would love to be able to come here and make things up and maybe one day I will but right now I'm just sharing some information that I've learned in the past week and it's heartbreaking and so it's not I mean it's bad enough that folks are incarcerated in the first place and separated from their families especially at a time like this and then some of the folks who work in the prisons are not being careful 
not taking the health precautions that they should so folks are becoming infected. And they're also not providing information. So I'm doing the best I can to share the information that I do know. And also, because we live in a capitalist system, in order for folks to communicate, uh, they charge emails. So they, they charge per email sent. And imagine what it would be like for us, you know, or we so, is communicate so often through email, through text and everything. And imagine if we had to pay a certain amount of money, especially if you're not making much, if anything at all, when you're incarcerated to send email, to communicate with your loved ones, to let them know what's going on, to let them know how you feel. And there's so much that we take for granted. And it's just heartbreaking. And they also cannot communicate with one another, even if they're in the same facility. So they have to, they can't communicate directly. So it's just, there's misinformation, there's lack of information, people don't know what's going on. I mean, it's, I feel here, we still are like trying to find out what's going on, what's the best way to stay safe, how are people doing? How can we help one another? How can we share accurate information? Accurate, knowing that a lot of the folks who are spreading the news and information are sometimes not to be trusted. And then imagine that you are in a facility where you are, again, just even beyond that, not given the truth. You're kept from your loved ones. You have to pay to communicate with anybody. And... It's terrifying. And then we have these fuckers in Congress. I'm surprised most of them are still alive. I mean, I'm. I mean, people are at their breaking point. I think people have been at their breaking point before, and people are getting closer and closer to having nothing left to lose. I think there's like the Netflix and uh, the internet, and beyond that, I think folks are coming very close to having nothing, nothing left to lose. And that's when people are going to reach their breaking point. And I hope. And I do think that will happen, and my hope is that when this anger co turns into action, perhaps I'm talking to myself as well, that anger, righteous anger, is directed at the people in Congress and the elected officials who have done nothing for the working class. I hope it's directed at them and not at other folks who are also struggling. I hope it's directed upwards. I hope it's directed towards authority figures who have done nothing and has just have just let people die have refused to cut survival checks have instead decided to fund with our tax dollars more military forces to fund the police who cause harm everything to kill people and to kill this planet or i shouldn't say necessarily kill the planet but maybe kill life on this planet and to pollute this planet and we know who these people are so i'm just waiting and perhaps it just takes one person. I mean, I do believe that it's all about the collective and it takes many people to make change. And also, at the same time, one person stepping forward, many people stepping forward will hopefully encourage others to do the same. But there's no reason Mitch McConnell should be alive right now. As well as plenty of other people. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can uh, fill in the blanks there. And again, it's not, I mean... Obviously, the GOP are evil and cause harm, and a lot of the Democrats also cause a lot of harm. So I'm in no way just saying it's one party. It's uh, a lot of the folks who have their lobbyists, and they don't care. They have millions of dollars. They don't fucking care who lives and who dies. And they have, they have power where they could actually help people, and they choose not to. They choose not to, and I'm waiting for them to... Maybe I shouldn't be waiting anymore, right? 
put out into the universe. And I've said this before on the show. I wasn't planning on ranting this morning, but I guess I'm pretty fucking angry. I'm angry when I'm thinking of all the people we've lost over the last few years who are not here who should be here. And folks who continue to live who use their time on this planet we're only here for a limited amount of time who are able to gain power or control or capital and then they use it to make the rich richer and to ignore everybody else. I would like to think that their time is coming, has been coming for centuries. And I've said before on the show, obviously best case scenario is that the folks who cause harm, they wake up one day, boom, oh crap, I've been a terrible person. Let me redistribute my wealth. That's the very least I can do. Let's pay reparations. Let's give land back. Let's free people from prisons. Let's fire police. Let's invest in healthcare and infrastructure and public transit. Let's abolish student loans. Like, if this is not that, that out there. This would make a better world for everybody. And instead, they keep on funding the military as if, I don't know what the military is protecting us from. The call is coming from inside the house. Ugh. Ugh. Wow. Happy New Year. I would blow a kazoo if I had one. Well, maybe not. I don't know if it would be clean or not. I don't know. I'm trying to still, you know, use hand sanitizer and whatnot. Ugh. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Fun show. Real fun show here. I used to do comedy. Can you believe it? Um, someone left off a Petrero View newspaper um, outside at the station, so I thought I might share some information from that. Uh, it's right here. I did gather some articles, as per usual. There's some really fucking depressing articles. But there's also some positive things happening. Um, and I'll get to that. Whew. Actually, I'll probably just start off with that because I feel like we all need a lift. I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, could use something positive. Um, and again, oftentimes on the show, the positive news stories are when something bad is prevented from happening question mark but yeah that's kind of the, the positive things is like folks coming together to take action which is really inspiring and should be celebrated and repeated this is from the santa cruz sentinel santa cruz activists halt homeless camp eviction now obviously everyone should be housed um and then beyond that um if folks are not housed they should at least be able to be safe and have shelter have tents have whatever they need to survive best they can um, but, of course, we have uh, police <laughs> and other forces who like to evict people because fucking monsters, right? Every, t every time I'm like, oh, man, maybe I'm being too rough on them. They're like, nope, 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 nope. Also, I'm just going to, since I'm feeling pretty uh, animated right now, I also had some coffee this morning. Um, uh, people, there are conservatives in San Francisco. Sometimes San Francisco, like many other cities, sometimes like New York as well, has a reputation of being a progressive bastion and perhaps compared to other places – in some ways it is, and also it's not. There's been just tons of neoliberal policies which have destroyed, decimated the city and the residents of the city who have had who have been evicted over the years. Uh, artists, elderly folks, black folks, non-white folks, queer folks, people with HIV and AIDS have been low-income folks, teachers, etc. Elderly folks have all been uh, victims of 
rising costs of rent and no-fault evictions, low-paying jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And the people who have made the city artists, people who initially made the city the in incredible place it, it has a reputation of being, and it's still a very beautiful place, a lot of folks are no longer here. So, And then there's the influx of tech money and people who just don't fucking care and are awful. And I try not to get into it too much online. I just try to share people's opinions of whom I respect and agree with and who know what they're talking about. And then there's still, even with like positive things, there'll be someone, some conservative here, who's just like wants to blame everything on Chesa Boudin. And Chesa was elected DA last year or the year before. I can't keep track of time anymore. Maybe it was – I should probably uh, – like <laughs> I was here when it happened, but uh, sometimes it's hard to keep track of of time and when things happen. So he served since January 8th, 2020, as the, the DA for San Francisco, and he's one of the DAs who believes in rehabilitation more than punishment. So um, clearly that, that makes sense, right? You Ideally, if we want to look at the root of the problem and folks who maybe are causing harm or committing what are known as crimes, the idea is to think about, okay, why are they doing this and how can we help this person to not do it again and or look at the underlying causes of why someone might do this instead of just locking someone up and throwing away the key and punishing them and separating them from their families. So that makes sense to me, of course. Yeah, like that's definitely look into rehabilitation and think about how we can help people instead of punishing people. And uh, people in... There are some conservatives here who think uh, everything that goes wrong in, in, in San Francisco is his fault, even though he's only been in, in office for a year. And they're just like something – there's a hit and run over in, on Mission and Second yesterday, I believe, in Selma. And unfortunately, two people were, were killed. And then someone jumped in the conversation on Twitter and was like, well, that Chase is going to let those that driver go free and blah, 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 blah. You know, and just like this kind of – everything's his fault for some reason. And I was just thinking, uh, if I were to do comedy again, my one joke would be like, there was a there was an earthquake. There actually was an earthquake, maybe a 3.6 out in the Pacific Ocean. Again, in the last couple of days, who can keep track of time? And my my first thought was, oh wow, I bet someone's gonna blame this earthquake on Chesa, because <laughs> that's what these these folks do. Ha ha ha. Okay, what was I gonna say? Oh yeah, best case scenario, folks wake up one day, um, and they're like, oh, I'm causing harm. Let me stop. Something else I was going to say before that, the conservatives. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're going back to the story about uh, – so just the fact that people are more upset about people – kind of blaming people for, for living in tents instead of being like, how can I help these people or how can we provide support? They instead are like, let's pay police. Let's pay people to harass the folks who are on the street. So that happens here in San Francisco. It's also it'll happening in a lot of other places around the country, and it's happening in Santa Cruz. And so from the Santa Cruz Sentinel, Santa Cruz activists halt homeless camp eviction. And again, this is one of the – it's a positive story because people are preventing something bad from happening. Again, yikes. We're really grasping at straws here for some good news, but we'll find it. Stop the Sweeps moment movement faces off with law enforcement – and this was written by Jessica A. York, and it came out on December 28th, updated December 29th. Uh, Santa Cruz, in marked contrast to a similar effort a week earlier, Santa Cruz police officers arriving Monday at San Lorenzo Park were turned away 
from plans to further shrink a homeless encampment there. The more than 75 activists and homeless individuals gathered along the park's Dakota Avenue entrance facing off against some two dozen Santa Cruz Police Department personnel were at least in the short term successful in their mission to quote unquote stop the sweeps as organizers' social media announcements urged. Santa Cruz City spokeswoman Elizabeth Smith said authorities could not pinpoint a time when they would return to clear the camp next, but those staying there had already been given sufficient notice of the city's intentions. And they're trying to balance people's right to express their First Amendment rights with a calm scene and ensuring that it is safe and for everyone involved, Smith said. City officials had announced December 17th that a homeless encampment that has ebbed and flowed in, the si in size at the park uh, during much of the coronavirus pandemic would be cleared out in three phases through January 6th. Monday sweep on the heels of a night of rain was scheduled to target the space around the park's duck pond as the second stage with about 100 tents remaining. The order issued by city manager bleh, Martin Bernal uh, under special pandemic state of emergency powers has yet to be codified by a vote of the Santa Cruz City Council. And this, this goes on, then there's more information there. So I'm going to read just the last couple paragraphs. Harm Reduction Coalition organizer Denise Ellerick on site Monday took issue with the city's concerns about discarded syringe litter. She said her organization's members regularly collect full sharps, safe disposal containers, and rarely see them littered about in common areas. Given more time and coordination with city officials, Ellerick said her group would have undertaken proactive cleanup at the site. Smith said she was told that Parks and Rec department workers reported picking up about 10 to 30 discarded syringes on a daily basis at the camp. Activists Monday tried several tactics, some shouting at or alternative, alternately, alternately pleading with officers and city parks and rec workers pulling down chain link fencing around the park's perimeter. Several staring down silent officers told their personal stories of homelessness and struggle through megaphones. At one point, demonstrators penned in several officers on a short footbridge within the park, shoving in from both sides and refusing to let the officers pass for several minutes. So you can read more at the Santa Cruz Sentinel. We'll also post the link to this article on our page, uh, weeklyrev.org, and you can also find uh, other articles there as well. It's about 12.35, time for a bit of a music break. I'm going to take a sip of water, maybe calm down a little bit, and we'll have some more more news articles for you. Also, just to share, start off, um, had some technical issues when we started off. I was playing a, there was a an article that had a link to uh, James Baldwin's playlist. And the first song was Intermezzo by Gloria Lynn. And then had some issues here. So then went to a different playlist and we heard Spring by Tracy Chapman, a cover of Comfortably Numb by uh, Thelma Houston, and after that we heard uh, What's Good by Lou Reed. So here's some more music, and we'll be back in a bit. Please do stay tuned. <laughs> Don't talk And the ladies treat him kindly 
Your debutante just knows what you need, but I know what you really want.
women do get weary wearing the same shabby dress but when she's weary try a little tenderness you know she's waiting just anticipating things that she'll never never possess while she's without them try a little tenderness it's not just sentimental she has her grief and her care but a word that's soft and gentle makes it easier to bow you won't regret it and women don't forget it Cause love is their whole happiness It's all so easy Try a little tenderness Won't you try, try, try A little Choking on 
Crawford with Living on the Outside. And we've got music up and ready to go. There's a playlist on Spotify called Shea Baldwin, and we'll be providing a link to that as well. So this is James Baldwin's entire record collection as one uh, 478-song playlist. So we'll be playing uh, some more songs from that list throughout the episode. Next up, I'm trying to stick to positive news stories. And again, the positive things are there. People coming together, organizing, etc. This is from logicmag.io. Is that correct, or is it LL? Let's take a look and see. And despite how I might sound, I wasn't out partying last night, and I wasn't drinking, although I think maybe the folks across the hall might have been having a gathering. Mm, I'm feeling judgy. Um, yeah, I just but didn't go to bed till late, and just a lot going on. So yes, it looks like it is uh, logicmag.io for this source and let's take a look at this article this came out on december 20th on issue 12 commons evictor structures ellen excuse me aaron mcelroy and azad amir gassemi on fighting displacement the anti-eviction mapping project aemp describes itself as a data visualization data analysis and storytelling collective documenting dispossession and resistance upon gentrifying landscapes that compact summary emerges out of projects that sprawl across seven years and now three chapters. The group's original San Francisco Bay Area chapter, as well as newer chapters in New York and Los Angeles. Volunteers in each city have collaborated with tenants, unions, excuse me, tenants unions and housing justice groups in those places to produce dozens of oral histories, maps, reports, and zines. Before there were chapters in other cities, AEMP was only a Bay Area project and members of the collective met in the San Francisco Tenants Union building. When Aaron McElroy started the project in 2013, San Francisco was ground zero for the second tech boom that saw the tech industry rapidly reorganize the city and displace longtime residents. That year, Rebecca Solnit published an essay comparing Google buses to the invading Prussian army during the siege of Paris. McElroy was a housing organizer thinking about how mapping evictions might be a way to wrest some power from the disruptors and redistribute it to tenants. Today, AEMP members from all three chapters are building Evictor Book, the website we might have gotten instead of Facebook 15 years ago if Mark Zuckerberg had been more interested in housing justice than in raiding women's faces. The site lets you search for evictors by name or building address and surfaces eviction data that's almost impossible for tenants to get themselves. And the writers of this article sat down with McElroy and AEMP LA member Azad Amir Gassemi to learn more about the project. And the first question is, and I'll do my best to read this. I know it, it, sometimes it can feel uh, unusual perhaps to share a question and answer by reading it. And I'll do my best to share what it sounds like. Okay, or yeah, and we'll also be posting this on our webpage. Why did you make a Victor book? Aaron says, particularly since 20, 20, 2008, we've seen the rise of corporate landlordism. We've seen huge investment companies. Blackstone and Invitation Homes are two of the biggest in the U.S., but there are many others that will buy up swaths of property with unique limited liability company, LLC, or limited partnership names. Take 55 Dolores Street LLC and 49 Guerrero Street LLC. 
these two LLCs are subsidiaries of Urban Green Investments, which is a big investment company that evicted many tenants in San Francisco in 2013. In the process of buying those properties, the company established a separate LLC for each one, which helped them with a number of things in terms of finance and liability and also afforded them anonymity. It's often very hard for tenants to know which other buildings in the city are owned by their landlord if each property has a unique sounding ownership name. When that was happening in 2013, the anti-eviction mapping project was just getting started and we didn't have a tool like a Victor book. So we're doing property research manually. We'd create static websites where we'd list all the LLCs and the evictions that we were able to connect to that investment company with the idea that this information should be public and that tenant organizers should be able to use it for campaigns, ideally multi-building campaigns against large-scale landlords. They were essentially profile pages on different landlords. That's useful because you have a much stronger chance of winning a fight against your landlord if you're working together with other tenants across that landlord's other buildings. We also created a lookup tool and a pledge map back in 2014. You can type in an address, see if there's been an eviction there, and then pledge to not rent from that landlord. The map was pulling in public eviction data from the San Francisco Rent Board. The obvious next step was to connect other data to it, like parcel data and corporate ownership data. That turned out to be a lot harder than we realized, so it's taken us some time. But that's what the Evictor Book website does. It brings together a lot of those tools that we've already been using for years and makes it easier to see landlords, LLC networks, and eviction histories of different buildings in San Francisco. You can enter an address or a landlord's name and we'll show you a profile page with evictions connected to that entity. Ooh, uh, my partner was evicted a number of years ago and, um, oh, this is just a, uh, it's a screen cap and I tried to enter it for real, but I will check that out later. Okay, and next up, the next question is, how did you all build it? And Aaron says, the work began in early 2019 in collaboration with other member organizations of the San Francisco Anti-Displacement Coalition, SFADC, and in collaboration with the Mapping Action Collective, MAC, in Portland, Oregon. Since then, we've done some workshops with different tenant groups to figure out what needs and questions they had given the new COVID conditions and we've been really lucky to get new front-end peop front people involved in development work. Right now, we're making the site more user-friendly and doing more user testing in LA and Oakland. Azad says, the tenants' unions in LA and San Francisco already do this kind of research when they're fighting evictions, and organizers in other cities around the country are making similar tools, drawing from the same resources that we draw from, assessor data, property records, eviction data where possible, and sales data. With Evictor Book, we're just trying to make it easier, since tenants are most, are most motivated to do this research when they're already in crisis. They're faced with belligerent landlords who harass them in all kinds of ways, ripping out appliances, or sending fake legal notices to get people out. Before we had Evictor Book, we'd start at the assessor's office doing searches on paper and then look up what we could online. But property ownership networks have gotten very sophisticated. People ring out profits from one city and then move to other cities. So in the process of connecting all the data we're working with, we're also trying to map networks of financial speculators and evictors. The next question, have you heard about any surprising uses of the Victor book? And Azad says, there are a bunch of use cases. One is proactively asking, what has this landlord done in the past? Is this landlord representing themselves accurately? 
Another is, is this landlord lying to me about what's taking place? In California, landlords can do what's called an Ellis Act eviction, where they evict someone because they say they no longer want to rent out the building. In Los Angeles, there's a five-year limit with this kind of eviction when the landlord is not allowed to rent out the unit, the unit they evicted someone from, but they can move in for a little while and then sell the property before five years are up. There are also owner move-in evictions that operate similarly. A Victor book could tell you if something like this is the reason you're being evicted. The next question. Do landlords do these kinds of evictions in order to get rid of rent control in the, their buildings? And Aaron says, indirectly, yes, because they can rent and sell the units for more money if there's no rent control. In San Francisco, after a landlord uses the Ellis Act to evict tenants from a rent-controlled building, the building will often then get sold as multiple tenancy in commons, which will still have rent control, but then they will get converted into condos. And when that happens, the building loses rent control. That's one of the many loopholes. In short, what we're seeing with Ellis Act evictions and owner move-in evictions is that we're losing effective rent control, which, in the case of condo conversion, is a non-renewable type of protection. Azad says, I was thinking we could add a feature to Evictor Book that shows how much a landlord profited from an eviction. We have the sale price before and the sale price after. And Aaron says, oh yeah, that would be great to see. Azad says, it wouldn't be hard to do. We have all this data that we're actually not spending much time analyzing. We know who the evictor of a given building was, and not just who evicted that one unit a few years ago, but looking back over 15, 20 years of evictions. That, combined with the networks of LLCs, shows not just ownership structures, but also the evictor structures in the history of housing, which is the history of gentrification and the history of displacement in neighborhoods that are financialized. There are so many questions we could use this data to think about. And then... Next up, they have a uh, screen cap. Uh, for multi-building campaigns, tenants have to know what other properties a landlord owns. A Victor book surfaces that information. Next is half-open data. Aaron says, there are all these public data sets and open data portals that different cities have, but none of those data sets will indicate who corporate landlords or evictors are. Azad says, or the stories of the people who are impacted. Aaron says, right. So the data that's fueling a vector book is technically public, but people have to put zillions of hours into stitching it together for what we need. You would think that cities and different administrative bodies would do this work, but it's not in their interest. So we're taking public data and connecting it so that it can be useful to tenants. The, the uh, interviewer says then, I remember looking for rent stabilization data when I lived in New York, and the closest I found was this project, um, amirentstabilized.com, which is someone's personal project to help people do this. The city has that data and could share it with tenants, but they don't. Aaron says, totally. Azad says, and New York is a special case where there are different levels of rent stabilization and rent control, and the property owners know that the status of their building, but it's not easy for tenants to look up that information themselves. The website walks you through the process of connecting, of contacting a city office, which is then supposed to mail you the answer, but if they don't, you're supposed to set a calendar reminder for yourself to follow up with them. Azad says, that's because these institutions are beholden to property owners who fight tooth and nail for data about them to remain inaccessible. And with open data, as soon as the data gets politicized, it gets pulled. We just saw this in Chicago, where there were some open data sets about policing in the city. Several reports were written about them, and then that open data got removed. The neoliberal fantasy that motivated the open data movement in the first place was like, if you just open the data, people will make great business products out of it. 
but it's proven to be much more complicated. And next up, there's a screenshot. A Victor book shows historical eviction data for a given building, data that's otherwise difficult to find and piece together. It's also a ton of ongoing work to maintain that, that data and keep producing clean data sets. We want to be very transparent in a Victor book. We're not just saying this person might own this property. We're saying there was an eviction here, this person owned the property during the at eviction, and here's why we're sure of that. A ton of due diligence goes into that. We've talked a lot over the course of this project about how we can avoid replicating some of the horrible data practices of property tech. Landlords have blacklists on prospective renters that they create from doing a regress. Editor. Short for a regular expression, a way of defining a pattern and then finding matches that fit the pattern. On five characters of a last name without any other verifying information. That's a great way to block large swaths of entire demographic populations from renting. We're being extremely careful about that kind of thing. The next question. Tell me more about these lists of renters based on five characters of a last name. I usually think of a landlord tech as more as surveillance cameras in buildings. And Azad says, it's that too. Aaron says, tenant screening has been around since the mid-1970s and has experienced different booms, such as the big one after 9-11 and another one after 2008. It's getting more and more robust as an industry, weaving together past eviction history with any criminal record history that someone might have, along with credit reporting. There are so many bad data practices within each step. Of course, people are being wrongly criminalized at the outset, but also, oftentimes, these screening bureaus only look to see if a tenant has appeared in any kind of housing court, not necessarily what the outcome of the case was. So, someone may have reported that their landlord was abusive, which gets their name registered in some database because they filed a complaint. It's a mess. Azad says, we talked to eviction lawyers who were shocked that those lists were out there. We assumed that they knew, but they were like, no, there is no central repository. There is just a patchwork of data on people who have been evicted. I think tenant screening companies literally just sell CSVs back and forth. Aaron says, different states have different policies about this. A few years ago, California passed a law that's supposed to protect tenants from having their data collected by these screening companies. New York just last year passed a law that bans tenant blacklists, but apparently it's still happening in both California and New York, despite these laws. More broadly, there's not a lot of regulation or enforcement around how these companies get data. In New York, LexisNexis sends its own people to housing court to take photos of the computers with all the eviction records. Then they bring those back, standardize them, and sell the data to tenant screening companies. Really weird things like that. The surveillance you mentioned is also part of the property technology or prop tech umbrella, which involves biometric data and all kinds of other tools and practices. We've been having a lot of conversations with other organizers about how to ensure that we don't put data out there that can be used against tenants. And then the interviewer says, that gets to a security issue. There are housing justice groups already using a Victor book, but it's not publicly available yet. Can you talk about how you're thinking about whether or not to make it public? Nazad says, we've been thinking through worst case scenarios. How could this data be used in a way that we didn't plan for? What if the data was hacked? The eviction data is something we have access to that most people do not. We've gotten it through relationships with the courts, housing boards, and tenant organizers. So the raw data itself will probably remain restricted. But the rest of the site will be public and usable. Aaron says, 
we've been weighing the risks of putting it out there, there's always more verification of the data that can be done. On the other hand, there are risks involved in not putting it out there. It could be useful for people organizing rent strikes right now, particularly with COVID. And there's a bit more here, but I feel like you all got a good sense of what it is. And I'll post the full article on our website, weeklyrev.org. And time to rest my voice a bit. And I do hope to uh, begin interviewing folks again pretty soon. Just uh, haven't been able to coordinate interviews at the moment. But um, in the meantime, we'll be providing these, uh, these articles with lots of good, important information. All right, here's some more music, and we'll be back in a bit. Understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Sometimes, baby, I'm so carefree With a joy that's hard to hide And then sometimes again it seems that all I have is worry And then you're bound to see my other side But I'm just a soul whose intentions But that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you Oh, baby, I'm just human Don't you know I have faults like anyone Sometimes I find myself alone Regretting some little foolish thing Some simple thing that I've done I'm just a soul whose intentions are Long ago, 
That was the Pointer Sisters with Cloudburst. And I feel like playing a lot more music, so I'm probably just going to do that for the rest of the show. I did want to share some headlines, and again, we will be posting the links on the website, weeklyrev.org, singing because the news is depressing and I'm trying to distract myself from the the future. However, uh, important to know what's going on so we can help fight it. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, so this is from the Audubon, audubon audubon.org. The border wall has been absolutely devastating for people and wildlife. And it says that President-elect Biden's pledge to halt construction is a start, but activists say tearing down the barrier is ultimately what's needed. It's an article by Lourdes Medrano. And again, we'll, we'll post the article on our website. And another article that we had up is from... Oh, I think that was pretty much it. I did want to play a clip about what's happening in prisons, and KPFA did a story on that as well, so I want to share some audio from that. Also, the headline from the Petrero View that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode and forgotten about was Food Bank Emerges as Key Service During Pandemic, and that's written by Zoe Tribber, and we'll also post a link to that as well. It's really helpful to have independent local news sources. So this is from KPFA. You can also listen online at 94. 4.1. They also have a website, kpfa.org. And this is about what's happening in California prisons, uh, including Yuba County, the, um, ice detention, the ice detention facility at Marysville, California. So I'm going to uh, start playing that. I'm going to fast forward to that part uh, when they talk about that story and then finish up with playing some more music from James Baldwin's record collection. So fast forward a bit here. Thanks again for tuning in. I guess now's a good time to, um, I have a lot of trouble asking for help and asking for funds. However, if you're able to donate, please do so. We have a Patreon up on our website, weeklyrev.org. Anywhere from a dollar a month and up would greatly help. I uh, rent the studio space here, so we need funds for that, as well as keeping the website active. And also for the time and energy I put into this, um, uh, would really help, especially these days. So if you're able to, um, please do donate to the Patreon. Also, um, if you'd rather do like a one-time donation, please get in touch. There are ways to do so on our website. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well, at R-O-M-A-N-R-E-M-E-R, and um, you can donate via Venmo. Thanks so much, and uh, here we go from uh, KPFA. Let's take one moment while we get to the right place, and uh, take just a moment. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. And Mutiny Radio is a space here where you can have a show of your own if you're interested. Please go to mutinyradio.fm. We've got a lot of other great shows here every day during the week. So for a full list of programs, go to mutinyradio.fm. All right. And then with (laughs) no further ado, going to link into the story from KPFA. This is from December 29th, their 7 a.m. show. You can also find this online. 50s. I'm Max Springle. News returns at 8.30 on KPFA. Good morning. It's 8.08 and you're listening to Up Front. I'm Janine Etter. 
Cap Brooks and Brian Edwards Tickert are out until January. Up next, we look at the COVID outbreaks inside ICE detention facilities in California. This time, we turn our attention to Yuba County Jail in Marysville, California. Advocates are calling it a humanitarian catastrophe. As of yesterday, 86 people have tested positive for COVID in the county jail and five people in ICE custody and 15 staff. Our reporter Lucy Kang spoke to Johnny, who was not using his full name for fear of retaliation. Johnny is originally from Central America. His daughter is a U.S. citizen and his other family members also live in the United States. Johnny participated in the hunger strikes earlier this year, for which he says he faced retaliation. Jessica Yamani Morega, Moraga, attorney at Dolores Street Community Services, was the interpreter for this interview, which has been edited for time and clarity. Right now, I am in my own cell, but around me are around 38 people in the same dorm. By all of the 38 people around, they're breathing the same air. And the guards within Yuba County Jail are bringing people who are coming from quarantine-designated pods into the pod, and then they take them out again. And they're not providing the folks that remain in this pod with a reason for why they're moving people. Yeah, I've been moved from unit to unit. I'm there for three days, then I moved again, and uh, officers don't tell us why. The only reason I know what's happening at all within Yuba County Jail is because we are telling our attorneys and advocates on the outside what's happening, and then they're providing us with information. But we're not getting told anything by Yuba County Jail for why we're being, we're being moved. So we're confused because we're not getting anything in writing about whether we're testing positive or negative for the coronavirus. In reality, it's not clean at all. It's not adequate for anybody to be detained here. The cells are very dirty. Um, there aren't chemicals for cleaning. You have to pay for soap, and there aren't uh, papers to be able to wipe down the phone. Well, this season, I'm thinking of more than any anything my daughter, who's five years old. Whenever I speak to her right now, she asks me for presents and asks me, when am I going to leave? And it breaks my heart because she's still developing uh, her consciousness, but I know that she understands in part what's happening, and I worry for that impact that it's having on her. And also for my mom and for my siblings. 
estoy muy asustado porque nos sentimos a, a, a I am very worried and shocked. I feel that I am on a boat that is sinking, sinking, and because they're moving us all around, and I feel that I have been sentenced to death. This is going to be a, a bad Christmas, the worst, because I don't know if I'm going to contract the virus and get sick. That was the voice of Johnny, who is in ICE custody at Yuba County Jail. Since that interview, Johnny has communicated via his attorneys that seven more people have tested positive for COVID in his area, Pod A, and have been moved to medical segregation. But despite the virus spreading and more people falling ill, attorneys say many are reluctant to report symptoms because they are afraid of the terrible conditions of solitary medical segregation. Johnny and other people in ICE detention are calling for eight demands from the jail, including providing N95 masks for everyone in custody, more transparency and communication, and end to transfers between housing units, and allowing for independent inspectors to conduct unannounced visits. We'll post the full list of demands on our episode page at kpfa.org. Our reporter, Lucy Kang, also spoke with Eduardo, who is currently in ICE detention in Yuba County, about the alarming and unhygienic conditions there. Eduardo was part of the hunger, hunger strikes that took place in the summer, calling for better conditions during the pandemic and says he faced retaliation. He is not using his full name for fear of further retaliation. This interview was edited for time and clarity. A quick content warning, the following story mentions a suicide attempt. Everybody fears for their life in here. The last time they they provided us with cloth masks was uh, a little bit over two months ago. And, you know, we have to be washing them. We have to be washing them and they wear out. You know, they're old. Some of, uh, some of the uh, other detainees' masks have ripped. It's impossible to social distance where, where I'm at. And... Sometimes we go weeks without getting any soap, um, which is really bad, you know. Um, our families are doing bad out there, you know. A lot of us don't have, uh, you know, funds, money, and in, 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 in for commissary, you know, to, to purchase soap or other things to, to, to sanitize, you know. We have floods in here, water, water nasty water that that smells really bad with feces and we have to be the ones cleaning it it's not safe at all you know and and it's it's it's, it's not okay that they have us housed here in the county jail with this um county inmates you know that are coming in every day you know and and and, and just because they tested negative yesterday doesn't mean that they're going to test negative today one of those one of the of the persons that has covid and ice is an older guy that's like 60 years old and he's diabetic and they moved him out of our dorm my dorm where i'm at to isolate him and he caught the covid over there because they put him with the um with the county inmates now he's now he has covid that's 
really sad more than anything. It's very bad in here, you know. Um, this causes psychological effects such as depression and and anxiety, and that may cause people to try to harm themselves as a way to escape. You know, I've seen it. I, I I've seen it many times. You know, people crying in their bunks, people abusing psych meds so they could sleep away the misery of reality. One time I witnessed a person trying to commit suicide by hanging himself off the sprinklers, pipelines. And that was late at night, you know. Thank God there was a few of us awake, you know, that prevent that from happening. But this is just a few things, a couple things that I'm sharing with you so you could see how bad it is in here. So... A few months ago, we did a hunger strike, and I spoke up, you know, I spoke up, and, 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 the, and the way they retaliated against me was they, didn't, they, they weren't giving me my mail. My mail was being returned to the sender. You know, um, being incarcerated, a way to communicate with people is writing letters, you know, you expect pictures, you know, that's how you see your loved ones. And that psychologically affect me, you know, because now there's that fear in me that they might still be doing that or they could always do that whenever they want to. And I might not even find out, you know? So that's the way it psychologically affects me because now I have that I'm afraid, you know, and 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 I feel like there's like with with my hands tied up that there's nothing I could do. But me personally, um, I'm 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 the main breadwinner of my house, you know. My mother depends on me, you know. She's old and. She needs me out there, you know, and and she needs to she needs to get surgery, but she's waiting for me to get out to get surgery because that would require her to stop working and the heal the healing would be uh up to six months that she wouldn't be able to work and she can't get that surgery because I'm not there to help and support her, you know, and and and, and take care of her. And it's very hard. It's very frustrating, you know. I'm sure a lot of us, a lot of people in here are in the same situation I am, you know, with their family. And it feels like we're we're on we're, we're sinking, you know, on on a on a, on a boat, and, and and we're trying to get to the top, you know, and trying to survive the most that we can. And you know. Um, it's it's, it's 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 very sad and frustrating that they don't hear our voices, you know. But nobody should in these times of pandemic should be, you know, detained in ICE custody because we're not here paying for a crime. Um, we're here for a civil matter. We shouldn't be here. Um, a lot of us, you know. Um, we have been here most of our lives, 
like myself. You know, I've been here since I was eight years old. You know, this is home. This is home. I, 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 my life is here. You know, my loved ones are here. It's, it's, it's not fair that they put our, 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 our lives in danger that, you know, we're here at risk of catching COVID because we're illegal. We're afraid. We fear for our lives. The only, the only way lives will be saved. That was the voice of Eduardo, who is currently under ICE detention in Yuba County Jail. KPFA reached out to ICE and Yuba County Sheriff's Office for comment, and ICE replied with a written statement, quote, ICE staff and facility strictly here to national detention standards, which detail standards concerning environmental health and safety. Official information about COVID-19 positive ICE detainees is posted at uh, ICE.gov forward slash coronavirus. ICE cannot comment further as the matter is pending litigation, end quote. The organization Faithful Friends has offered to donate hundreds of N95 masks to the jail, which have not yet been received. Eduardo and other people in ICE detention are calling for eight demands from the jail, including providing N95 masks for everyone in custody and into transfers between housing units and allowing for independent inspectors to conduct unannounced visits. Uh, We'll post the full list of demands on our episode page at kpfa.org. And up next, we continue with our series looking at the COVID outbreak inside California state prisons, as told by family members of incarcerated people. Monique Jimenez is a member of We Are Their Voices, a group of family members advocating for better conditions for their loved ones. Our reporter Lucy Kang spoke with Monique and her daughter Kayla about their husband and father, Chris, who was incarcerated at Pleasant Valley state prison my name is monique jimenez and i and my husband we have eight kids so he is currently at uh, pleasant valley state prison his base term is two years but he will be taken away from us for nine years due to enhancements you know we hear so many i, I talked to so many other families or wives with present pleasant valley and there was one who husband was taken to an outside facility and she wasn't even made aware of this so of course that's where my man goes and i had um called the prison i spoke with the pio lieutenant harris and he told me if an incarcerated person from pleasant valley has to get sent out to an outside facility they are not allowed to tell anybody that their loved one is at an outside facility And if it came to the point where our loved one became incapacitated and can no longer make their own medical decisions, at that point is when we would be contacted and notified. My husband had actually contracted COVID. When we talked, he was saying, like, he sounded so congested and his cough sounded so deep. So we were already worried. I feel like he was trying to be very brave on the phone even though we can hear he was sick i feel like he was trying to be very brave my husband had wrote a letter to my daughter and in this letter he kind of let that guard down and 
let us know or let my daughter know that that he was really sick that he was very sick and he didn't know if he was going to make it and um he wanted that to be documented and he put his signature on it um in case anything happened to him and then he also just uh wanted to tell us all that um he loves us and and let us know that in case he didn't make it out and then he also advised her that if it did come down to him having to go to outside hospital or if he didn't make it that he had already had um pre-written and pre-stamped letters that somebody would be mailing out to us so it was very frightening to say the least um especially because the information that we can be given is so limited and so i feel like he was definitely um saying goodbye Hi, my name is Kayla Jimenez, and I'm going to be reading a letter my father had wrote me dated December 6th at 3.34 p.m. Hey, Kayla, I hope you are doing okay. I miss you so much. Okay, so I don't want to stress you out, but I am really sick. I started feeling like bleep on Thursday, December 3rd. Anyways, I figured once you got this letter, you would tell mom, but please don't. I don't want her to stress. So look, I've had a fever for two days, chills. Oh my gosh, effing such bad body aches. My breathing is bleeped up, cough, sore throat, nausea. I really just want to die but I'm going to stay hydrated and keep taking my vitamins and pray to God to get over this. So I told my Sally, if anything happens to me, to please mail you a pre-written letter I did to let you know I got taken out and how I have been feeling. If this prison neglects my symptoms and tries to prolong any medical care, I am putting this on paper how to verify in my own words and handwriting that I knew something was wrong with me and the proper actions were not taken care of. Please tell Gabby I love her. Please tell all my kids I love them. And your mom, she is my everything. And I will write her as soon as I can. Love, Daddy. All right. Gonna Again, you can find the full story at kpfa.org, and we'll also provide a link on our website. Ugh, uh, let's hope this next year, more few days, um, comes with peace and justice for everybody. And I'm going to share some more music for the rest of the program. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week. Take care. To get scared.
when you're weary feeling small when tears are in your eyes I'll dry them When you're down and out When you're on the street When evening falls So Ceylon silver girl, Ceylon vine, your time has come to shine, all your dreams are on the Shine. 